Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze. And today, I've got someone who has become a very good friend and who is just really cool. In fact, she was recommended to me by Robert Griswold, someone that uh, you guys have heard recently on on the show and by the way he will be returning to the show regularly so you can look forward to that but you know we don't want to get too deep into announcements i don't want to keep the guests waiting her name is sonda allison sonda welcome to the show hi Teresa. thanks so much for having me you have an interesting uh ministry and an interesting way of looking at things can you briefly give the audience an idea of what it is you do and where the lord has called you well, right now he has me working in a, a ministry that I started. It's called Myrtle Ministries, and it's at MyrtleMinistries.com. Myrtle, like the Myrtle Tree, M-Y-R-T-L-E. And that deals with um, a three-pillar approach to healing and deliverance. And that is, um, the first pillar is inner healing with counseling. The second pillar is spiritual warfare and deliverance. And the third pillar is discipleship. And he just kind of revealed to me through a, through decades of studying spiritual warfare and studying with other people that he wanted me to do it this way because there aren't very many ministries that do that. And I find that there's something lacking and it doesn't mean that someone else is doing it wrong. I'm really careful about that. I'm not criticizing the way someone else does ministry. I'm just doing what the Lord told me to do, which was to combine it in a three-stranded cord. And that way you learn life changes. So deliverance will be for the rest of your life. If you if you just go for counseling, which is if any churches or congregations that have some support service, they usually just have counseling. But counseling, though it comes at it from a um, psychology point of view, you may get some healing, you may get some relief, and there is great value in counseling, but it never addresses the spiritual darkness that entered in in the first place. If the church or congregation only has a deliverance ministry, it provides deliverance. You can get delivered of the spirits, but again, you never learned how that got in in the first place, and you don't know how to stay free for the rest of your life because there's no discipleship involved. So that's why the Lord told me to combine all three of those, and that's what I've been doing now, um, training people and equipping them to get free, breaking bondage, and also learning how to stay free for the rest of their lives, walking in power and love in a sound mind. Mm, that's, that's really cool. I want to kind of get an idea of what what brought you to this place? So let's let's start with how how did you uh, come to know the Lord? Well, I came to know the Lord literally around four years old. I was on the second pew. My mother had my hand in hers, and we were standing at the end of a service. And the pastor was giving an invitation, and I kept trying to pull away from my mother, and she was getting angry at me. <laughs> and the pastor looked at her and said don't do that. Don't hold her back. Let her go. And she let me go. And I ran, I ran straight to, I was, well, again, we were on the second row, but I ran straight to the steps that went up to the platform. And I got on my knees and started praying. And he came over and prayed with me. And that's, that's how I officially got saved. And I've been, so I've always been saved since the age of four. But that does not mean <laughs> that you don't have ups and downs, ebbs and flows, growth moments, times where you get frustrated or question your own faith. It doesn't mean that I haven't had that journey. I've had a very intense journey 
in my life and with the Lord, but I did get saved at age four. Did your mother raise you in a godly home or was she kind of a churchgoer, but she didn't really want you getting involved? You know, sometimes I wonder, anybody out there, as, as you get older and you start looking at your parents, you, you start pondering things that you didn't ask before. I'm not really sure where she was at with her faith at that time. We went to church every Sunday. Um, we definitely played the role of a Christian family, but I was really young, so I'm not really sure what she was feeling in her heart. There was a lot of stuff going on that was not, that was not definitely not God-honoring. Uh, a lot of upheaval and abuse in the family. There was a big struggle there. And and that's one of the things I teach in ministry, actually, is that if you are willing to, God can take anything, even the darkest moments of your life, and make it something beautiful. And that's what he's done for me. He called me. It's just like Jeremiah 31, where he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. That's like my my little uh, relationship scripture with the Lord. That's exactly what he did for me. So things that were very difficult later became a strength and also helped me in ministry to other people. Okay, so you came to know the Lord, but you said you had some turmoil kind of growing and getting to know him. So what led you, shall we say, to the place that you are at now? Well, it's definitely not a straight path. (laughs) Well, I don't think the Christian life really is. So Yeah, you know, but, but I really had some left and right turns here and there. I was very aware of God's presence at a very young age. And I think a lot of children that are in abusive situations might be able to say the same thing. There's an awareness. And at the same time, you might be upset at some point in your life that you went through something difficult or an abusive uh, situation. But then you also later in life, if you're willing to heal from it, God eventually reveals to you that he was there so much more than you ever thought. And then you finally heal from it. I'm not angry at God anymore about it because I finally healed from it. So, you know, it definitely wasn't a straight shot, but it was up and down and and God was very good. He he knew that I wanted to serve him and I talked to him through my whole childhood. It was a very it was very much a survival thing for me too. I depended on my prayers with him. It got me through a lot of dark times. Um, but I could totally feel his presence and I was only about 5 or 6 years old and there's something very troubling had happened in our house, and I was laying in my bed crying silently. And I, there was a window at the head of my bed, and I was looking out at the stars, and I was just kind of praying, and I was asking the Lord, "Can I please have a hug?" And I literally felt God's arms go around me. It was really, it's really intense, and I just cried and cried and cried and cried. Wow! Wow! I can I. So you literally felt God just, I mean, and and how did that like change your relationship with him or did it? It absolutely did because early on, God was very real. And partly because of that experience, I had an experience that is, is more precious than gold. And that is I had a prayer. There was an innocent prayer of a child. God answered that prayer, and I literally felt these huge arms go around me, and I just started crying. And I never cried as a kid. It wasn't safe for me to cry, so I never cried. So I felt so safe that I just cried, and I fell asleep. It was a very powerful moment, that I, and I, obviously I never forgot it. It really gives you something in the tangible, because we deal so largely with the unseen, when we're talking about God and spiritual life, it was a, it was a very powerful thing that I that I held close to my heart. 
for the rest of my life. Now, you referenced abuse, and for the audience's sake, there may be someone who's gone through something. What kind of abuse did you deal with growing up? Well, it was it was pretty much all kinds. Both of my parents had very difficult childhoods. Just like the Bible says, you know, these things get passed down, and if nothing's healed, it gets done to the children. They were doing the best that they could. No one wakes up and says, hey, let's have a kid so we can abuse our child. No one says that. So that was not what was in their mind. They were doing the best that they knew how to do, and they thought they were doing a few steps better than their parents did with them. Um, And so I have no anger. I have no bitterness towards my parents. I realized, praise God, it was a Holy Spirit revelation. That's one of the, the things that I'm amazed at about my own life is that at really early ages, the Lord revealed these things to me. I didn't know it was the Lord, but there's no other excuse for a six-year-old child to have a conversation with themselves and say, hey, boy, my parents really were damaged as children. I'm going to have to be really careful so I don't pass this on to anyone else. (laughs) Okay, you came to that when you were six? I was six years old. I remember the moment I was thinking. I I used to be outside all the time, and, and I was sitting under a tree, and I just said, okay, boy, you know, there's some real damage here. I'm going to have to really be careful to not pass this on. And how can I do that? I had this whole talk with myself about how, how to not let that damage me so that I would pass it on to someone else. And I kept saying, okay, I'm just going to have to be really aware. I'm going to have to pay attention to what these things are, because if I try, if I just shut down, it'll overwrite the programming kind of a thing. And interesting. Uh, it is very interesting. How does a little kid know to do that? It's nothing but the power of the Holy Spirit. Moving forward, you know, at, at ages five and ages six, coming to this realization and 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 seeing God move in such a physical way, what happened? Well, I was in junior high school and we moved from Washington D.C. to Southern California. And when we did that, we moved to at the time it was a lovely house, and in this house, it was owned by a couple, a man and a wife, that was from London. And after we lived there, some weird things seemed to happen in this house. And one of the neighbors had told me that, well, you know, they were really into the occult. So I was in junior high. I knew enough about that, a little bit about that. So there was a day that I was outside playing with my friends and my parents were both gone. And upstairs on the second floor in the front room that had curtains, in broad daylight, we saw the silhouette the profile of a man in a derby hat walk in front of the window. And so they were like, oh my gosh, what's that? Didn't you say your parents weren't home? And we said, I said, yeah, my parents are not home. So that was one instance. And we went in, there were some older guys with us. You know, there was a whole group of the neighborhood kids playing. So there were about five of us together. And a couple of the guys were in high school. I was in junior high. They were in high school. So they, we all kind of walked together through the house to see who was there my parents came back and pulled in the driveway while we were walking through the house. And my, my dad said, what's going on? And we told him and he said, get out of the house right now. And he started walking through the house and there was nothing there. And then there were a couple of other occasions where things were moving on their own. That started my journey of studying spiritual warfare and carefully from a biblical perspective trying to figure out what was going on in the occult and what the dark side was doing. What does this mean? Why do they do this? You know, and trying to address all these questions and do this from a biblical point of view. And it so happened I was privileged to have teaching at that time. I went to a church where Dr. Walter Martin was teaching. And 
he's a monster in the faith in a very good way. He's just a really great father that did a lot of research. And he wrote uh, the book Kingdom of the Cults. And at the time in the 70s and 80s, he was just, it was just amazing to have in-person teaching with him. And so you were supposed to be 18 or over to be in his classes, but I looked a little older than my age and I always would sneak into his Sunday school class at my church and listen to him. And he talked about all of this stuff in the supernatural and the power of the Holy Spirit and addressing things from a godly perspective and um, spiritual warfare. So I started getting exposed to it at a very young age and I had no idea that it was going to (laughs) be some sort of a theme in my life that would come back over and over again. And I had no idea that God was going to use me in any sort of ministry in that way. But that's where the roots of it started. From the world's perspective, when exposed to something like that, they tend to say it's like a ghost, that that, that what you experience is like a ghost or something. Even at your young age, you recognized that this was not a ghost experience, but this was something having to do with spiritual warfare? It seemed to be that way, yes. But, you know, this is many, many years over my life. I was pretty young. And for decades, I continued to study it. So your views and what you know, it grows. So there were times that I thought, you know, from the beginning, I was getting a spiritual warfare. This is a demonic kind of presence. I was getting that input, which was totally biblical. But then as you get older, you also want to address, wait a minute, well, a lot of these, a lot of people out in the world think these are ghosts. How can I answer that question? If I don't know how to answer that question, I haven't really solved it. You know what I mean? So um, you have to be able to answer that question for yourself. Otherwise, it's still out there, and it means I don't know what I'm talking about. So I, I really looked into a lot of things in that area as well, and I studied it from a distance very carefully with a biblical lens. Generally speaking, that is not what they are. It's not the spirit of a passed on person. It is a demonic manifestation of something familiar and they take on forms and things to try and lure you in to get you to converse with them. Then you get into the necromancy and talking with the dead and blah, blah, blah. And it just leads you down a path. So they're, they're very, um, you know, the Bible says we are created lower than the angels and the fallen angels are very powerful and they're very smart and we are not hard to figure out. So they've also had thousands of years to watch mankind and know what we do. So they know how to trick us. They know how to draw us in. And one of the most powerful ways is if you lose a loved one, you know, to tempt you with a presence that looks or sounds like this person, you know, that pulls on the heartstrings. And before you know it, you're you're in full-blown conversation with them and desiring and and uh it out and, oh, I want to talk to them again. And, and it just draws you farther and farther into a very dangerous place. And it, and you can have very, you can start having a lot of other manifestation occur because you've now opened the door to that. And then you might be horrified to realize that you're unable to stop it. Once it starts, that door gets yeah, Walter Martin, the original Bible answer man. I've heard a little bit of his stuff. That that had to be amazing. It was amazing. It's a godsend. And it's only as an adult you can look back and go, oh my gosh, I had no idea what a privilege that was. He was a very powerful man. There were no books really on these things. And at a time where he was speaking out about these dark things were already beginning to creep into the church, so to speak. And he was calling them out in a godly way. And he took a lot of heat for what he did. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. And it was a privilege that God allowed me to be there. That's cool. So what happened through high school and beyond? Well, it just went on, you know, 
just like anyone else. I mean, there are a lot of people that have had different forms of abuse or whatever in their family. You survive it. At least I did by God's grace. And I, I say that very clearly because especially when I look back, there are so many reasons that I could have gone another direction. I could have destroyed myself or gotten into drugs or something like that. And praise God, I never got so out of bounds that I got into drugs. I did have, you know, sometimes where a teenager acts out because you're angry and you don't know what's going on. I didn't get into drugs or anything like that. So I, I went through high school. I was only able to go to the first two years of college because I didn't, I wasn't able to afford school. And uh, so I was already working in the entertainment business. I was a professional musician. And so I moved from Orange County to Los Angeles when I was just barely 19, 18, 19. To, I was already working in the music business, and uh, I was also modeling at that time, and I did a little bit of acting as well in, in one or two films and television shows. Moving forward, you had an event that, that, that you told me about off mic, and I kind of want to uh, touch on it today. You had a uh, car accident, am I correct? Yes, I did. <laughs> okay, do we, so what happened uh, with that, and how did that change things going forward? Well, I was negotiating record deals at this time. And I was in my 20s. I was negotiating record deals and I was on the way to a gig. And I went to a gig and it was in the mountains uh, in Southern California. It was in the mountains there. I stopped. I went to go skiing after I checked into the hotel the night before. That morning I was going to go skiing and then I was going to have sound check that afternoon. So a friend met me and we went, to, we went to go skiing. But as we were going up the backside of the mountain, because we were at the base of the mountain where the gig was going to be, we went up the backside of the mountain and we didn't know it was snowing very, very hard. But we were in a four by four with snow tires and, and the friend I was with was from the East Coast and knows how to drive in snow. So that was not a problem. But it was snowing so hard that we had to turn around and go back. It just took too long for us to get there. Um, and there's a whole long story with that. And when my book finally comes out, you'll be able to read the whole story. But anyway, there's a long story before we even got to that. <laughs> so we stopped at the snow line just before we exited the snow line. I had the idea. I said, you know, we both miss the snow so much since we're in California. Why don't we just get out and just throw a couple snowballs for a moment before we go back to the gig? And, and he was, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So there was a lookout point where it's just a, almost like an extra lane that kind of curves around. You could just kind of pull over so you're not on the on the road to look out over the valley and it was just this beautiful view and the the snowflakes were big huge fat snowflakes and there was nothing but the sound there was no one anywhere there was just the sound of the snow snowflakes hitting the pine trees so as he got out i stood on the passenger side of the vehicle up just in front of the passenger front wheel and I was trying to, and I was standing on a curb actually, and I was trying to get the zipper up on my jacket because I needed to make sure my voice didn't get cold since I had a gig that night. And while I was trying to get my zipper up, he went over and was starting to form some snowballs. And all of a sudden, right to my right side, I hear a voice go, jump. And I jerked around to look at, you know, who said this, and there was no one there. So I'm starting to get my zipper up again, and I'm thinking, what in the, what in the Sam Hill was that? <laughs> I heard an audible voice in my ear. What was that? And I'm trying to figure this out, and I'm pulling the zipper up on my jacket, and it's stuck. And now there was a second time, and it was even louder in the same right ear, and it jumped. I jerked around again, startled, and there's still nothing there. Now I'm starting to sweat bullets. 
I'm wondering what is going on? Why am I hearing an audible voice? I've never had anything like this in my life. And I'm nervous because I don't know what to do with it. I've never had an experience like this. And the guy who was with me said, what is wrong with you? Would you hurry up? And I said, did you hear that? He said, hear what? And I said, nothing. My zipper stuck. I'll be just a second. My zipper stuck. So I'm nervous. My heart is pounding and my palms are starting to sweat. (laughs) And even though I don't get sweaty palms and I'm trying to figure out what's going on, my zipper is still stuck. And now it was a third time I heard and it was a shout. And I've described this to people. If you've ever been in a really loud place, like at a sporting event or, you know, somewhere there's a lot of noise. And when someone leans next to your ear to say something to you, even if they're not shouting, when they're right up against your ear, you can hear inside your ear, you can feel the vibration. Okay. So that's what happened the third time. It was so close. I felt hot breath on my ear. My inside of my ear was vibrating and the voice went, jump, really loud. And I didn't even have time to turn around. The next thing I hear is these screeching tires and boom, I was hit. And um, I never saw it coming. And what happened was there was a truck coming down the, the mountain. And as it came around the mountain, it was speeding and it didn't have its chains on the way that it was supposed to. And it lost control. It hit our three, four by four. Our four by four hit me. Both trucks were completely totaled. I was hit so hard that where it hit me, the hood of the engine in our vehicle was smashed all the way up against the engine. That's how hard it hit me. He was doing... He was doing, I think, around 40 when he hit me. My head went through the windshield, and I instantly blacked out, but I was still aware. So I lost my vision, but inside myself, I was still aware of going end over end. And I was told that I was more than 10 feet up in the air, just spinning end over end over end as I went up. And then when I got to over 10 feet in the air, I stopped spinning, and I came straight down head first. So if we pause here for a second, think about how many reasons I should have been dead. I should have been dead from the impact. If I didn't die from the impact, I should have died when my head went through the windshield. If I didn't die when my head went through the windshield, I should have died when I came down straight first because I should have broken my neck at C1 and died right there instantly. But none of those things happened. I hit the ground and all of a sudden... um, I have this awareness when I hit the ground, I knew what had happened. I knew that it was really bad. I didn't know how I got hit and I didn't know what the size of the vehicle was, but I knew I felt my spine break when the truck hit me. You know, there's no pain when something like this happens. The pain comes later, but I felt my spine break. And I just said, when I hit the ground so hard, I said, okay, God, oh no. The first thing that I said to myself, I said to myself, and this is a quote, <laughs> just it's literally what I said. I said, okay, Miss High and Mighty, you've always said that you're not afraid of death. Now's here your chance. And I thought for a second, and I said, no, I'm not afraid of death because I believe in God. And if I'm right, then I'm going to be with God. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to cease to exist and it won't matter anyway. So I said, okay, God, I'm ready to go because inside myself, I was always an athlete. I was a performer. So I knew that It's one of the few things in my life I knew for a fact that there was no way I could handle. In my mind, I said, okay, God, I'm ready. Let's go. And what that meant, and God knew what I meant. What I meant by saying that was, I'm ready to die. Let's go. 
no problem. I'm ready. Let's go. At that point, all of a sudden, I had felt the spirit of the Lord around me so thick it was like honey. It was it was an otherworldly experience that's very difficult to describe, but it's almost like being in a swimming pool that's full of honey. So it's like slow motion. Everything moved kind of in slow motion. If I if I moved my hand, it felt like there was the slow motion resistance, but it was warm and thick. So that was the presence of God. When I said, okay, God, I'm ready, let's go. The only way I've ever been able to come up with to describe it, it's almost as if a hand went in front of my face and said, we will not hear that. And the spirit of God withdrew from me. And all when I felt the spirit of God withdraw, I started to panic. And I started saying, God, where'd you go? God, where'd you go? I can't do this. God, where'd you go? You can't leave me alone. And I'm panicking. I'm freaking out. Now, during this time, I had to wait for three and a half hours for an ambulance because back then it was 1992. We did not have cell phones. We had to wait for a passing vehicle, send them all the way to the bottom of the hill, for the bottom of the mountain to a pay phone and then wait. So I waited for three and a half hours for an ambulance. And that's, this is what's happening during that time. So I'm going, God, where'd you go? Don't leave me. Don't leave me. All of a sudden I heard another audible voice and the audible voice said, or if you want to use this to show people that you are really alive, that's okay with me. And it was in mid-sentence that I realized that it was my own voice, that I was the one speaking out loud. The rest of the conversation had all been internal in my head while everybody else was panicking and running around trying to get help. And so that audible voice was actually me speaking. And the moment the last syllable passed my lips, or God, if you want to use this to show people that you're really alive, that's okay with me. That last syllable, me, as it passed over my lips, I was pulled out of my body and I was flying through space. And it was like an episode of Star Trek where they're going at like warp 10 and the stars, it's so fast that the stars are blurred into little lines. That's what it looked like. And I'm standing and I'm in a white robe and I'm flying at the super high rate of speed, but there was no wind resistance. My hair wasn't moving. And the robe that I was in was white and it was made of thread that was light. If, if, you've, ever, if you've ever seen fiber optics, that's exactly what it looked like. If you could make fiber optics as small enough to be thread, that's what the cloth was made of. So the cloth was woven of this fiber of light. And so I'm just standing there and there was an angel behind me and I'm 5'9", and this angel was really tall because he's standing behind me and his arm was pointed out directly in front of me, pointing ahead. And he had the same kind of robe on and it had a bell sleeve that hung down. And he was so tall that his arm straight was way above my head. So he was really tall. And so flying at this really high rate of speed. And I just kept thinking, oh, I'm home, I'm home, I'm home. And I had this nonverbal communication with God where every single question that I've ever had, everything that I wanted to know the answer to that puzzled me or angered me or frustrated me that I didn't understand, all in the same second, it was answered. And in that exact same second, completely irrelevant. I knew all of my questions were answered, but it was most prevalent right in front of my face. All that matters is Yeshua. I say Yeshua instead of Jesus, but it's fine either way. Either way, you happen to say it. All that matters is Yeshua, Jesus. That's just everywhere I looked, every part of the presence all around me, that's all that matters. It's all about him. He magnifies the Father. The Father magnifies him, and he and the Father are one. So it's all about him. So I'm just flying through space, just going, oh, I'm home, I'm home, and knowing all of this stuff. Then I see this star that was out in front of me because, you know, all stars, when you look at stars in the sky, they're all planets. So 
I see a star that's way out in, in front of me and we're going straight toward it. And as we get toward it, I realize that it's a planet. And I realize then as we get closer that it's Earth. I see the North America. I see the power grid. And then all of a sudden it jumps. Now, up to this point, I could look anywhere I want. But when I got to this point, it was like a movie camera, looking through the lens of a movie camera. My vision was guided. It was directed by another force. So at this point, it jumps. And now I'm in an amphitheater and I'm flying over the heads of all of these people. And I'm in this amphitheater. And there are all these people standing and applauding. And I particularly remember this one man, and he shouted, how did you get through all of that? And then all of a sudden, there's an edit, if you think of a movie, because remember, my vision was directed at this point. There's an edit, and the next thing I see is if you're at the front row of a movie theater, and you're sitting on the front row because it's way too close, right? The movie, the screen takes up all of your vision. That entire screen was full of a pair of feet in black high heel shoes, black patent leather pumps. And that's what I see is this huge screen and nothing but black patent leather pumps fill my vision. And then all of a sudden it starts to back up and the camera tilts up and I see that it's me and I'm standing in black patent leather pumps. I've got this perfect little black church dress on that's very tasteful. And I'm on this stage in this big amphitheater with this full band and I'm singing and I'm telling people what God did in my life. And so I said out loud, oh, I'm going to be okay. I hear yes. Boom. Instantly. I'm back in my body and my eyes were open. I didn't open my eyes when I came back into my body. When I came back into my body, my eyes were already open. And when I came back into my body, the guy that was with me was on his hands and knees. I was laying on my right side after I hit the ground. He was on his hands and knees in front of me, looking at my face, screaming my name. And you could tell that he had been screaming my name for a while. He was absolutely panic stricken. And when I came back into my body and my eyes were already open, I saw him and I finally went, yeah, and I could barely whisper. And I just said, yeah, and he almost passed out from the stress. God bless him. He almost passed out from the stress. So I waited for three and a half hours for an ambulance. They finally got there. Then the person who happened to be in in charge of this crew was a woman. She was at my head and then there was a guy that was at my feet. You know, they're just talking back and forth. Okay, broken collarbone, broken ribs, massive internal injuries, massive internal breeding. It looks like her pelvis might be broken. And they've got to get me on a backboard to get me into the ambulance. And they've got to hook up an IV. So they're saying all this stuff to each other. And then they get me in the ambulance. And then I have to go down a mountain road curving back and forth really fast, trying to get me to the helicopter pad to take off for the hospital. And my spine is just rubbing back and forth against it's, I, fa- I found out later, and I have my x-rays, and I actually show them when I, when I give my testimony in public events. And when I put that x-ray up on the screen, you can hear the people who are doctors and nurses. You can hear them gasp in the crowd. I was hit so hard that my spine not only broke, it completely dislocated, which I learned later is extremely rare. And it was so hard that it dislocated something like three or four inches. And this is very important to the story, as you'll see in just a moment. So my spine is dislocated, which means it's overlapping, if, if you can imagine that, by like four inches. And so I'm going up and down these mountain roads really fast, and it's just rubbing back and forth together. So they get me in there, and I need to make this point too. When I had my out-of-body experience, the minute that God pulled me out of my body, it was like someone hit a light switch and the pain went off because I had started convulsing when the pain hit right before this happened. So it was like someone flipped a light switch and the pain went off and I'm out of my body and I'm flying. When I came back into my body, I never had severe pain again. 
It was uncomfortable. It felt like the wind had been knocked out of me, but it was never severe pain ever again. And anybody and any doctors out there, you'll know how remarkable that is because I've been told by doctors and surgeons that this, what happened to me is one of the most painful things that can happen to the human body. So uh, they take me to a helicopter pad. They rush me into the helicopter. The helicopter takes off and he has his, his, he's got his headset on trying to talk to hospitals about where to go. So he can't hear me at all. And I'm just going, oh, I've had this experience. I'm just going, oh, it's all going to be okay. I'm just having this experience with God. And so he's flying. Well, all of a sudden he turns around and says this to me and he knows he couldn't hear anything that I said because I didn't say anything. But he looked at me and he said, young lady, I don't know who you are, but God's looking out for you. He said, Loma Linda University does medical center does not take emergency patients anymore. And they just agreed to take you. So I later found out at that time in 1992, Loma Linda University Medical Center was one of the top two hospitals in the world for spinal cord injuries. I later found out at the same time, he was supposed to have taken me to Riverside General, which at that time, and I don't know if it still is, at that time was a prison hospital. And I later met people who had lawsuits against the hospital for sewing instrument. People sewed instruments up in their body during surgery, all kinds of big errors and stuff took place. Um, so that's where he was supposed to take me, but Loma Linda agreed to take me. So he lands at Loma Linda. They rush me into the ER and they're shoving a tube down my throat and taking all these x-rays and checking all these things. And by that time, the EMT crew arrived and the woman who was in charge comes in because the doctor who was in charge at ER was really ticked off. So he calls her over and they have a conversation just a few feet away from my head. I heard the whole thing. He said, well, you said she had a broken collarbone. She goes, oh, yeah, she does. And he goes, not now she doesn't. And the woman says, what? What are you talking about? And he said, you said she had broken ribs and massive internal injuries and massive internal bleeding. She goes, well, she did. And he said, not now she doesn't. He said, I don't know what your problem is, but I can't find anything wrong with this woman except a break in her back, one break in her back. And the woman was so stunned, she didn't even respond. She just turned around and walked out. By the time they got me from ER, after that conversation, they took me to a room in ICU. By the time they got me to my room in ICU, it was already all over the whole hospital. They didn't know what my name was. They called me because they knew that I was a professional vocalist and I was on the way to a gig. They called me the rock star miracle. That's what they named me. So, so I get to my room in ICU and all the hospital knows this and miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, I could talk to you for an hour and a half and we wouldn't even get it all. And that's why hopefully the Lord will help me eventually finish the book. It's all to his glory. It just was miracle after miracle. And they, they, at one point a nurse came in and she was tapping my IV and I said, oh, is something wrong with my IV? She said, yeah, it says you're not using your pain medication. And I know that's not true. And I said, no, I'm not using my pain medication. And she looked at me. She goes, what? Why aren't you using your pain medication? I said, well, actually, I'm not really hurting. And it shocked her. And she turned around, walked out of the room. So the next important thing is I'm there. And everybody that came in my room, I was just going, hi, thank you so much. Oh, I so appreciate it. Can I have any water? No, you can't have water because they're going to have to take you into surgery. Uh, can I have even a sip of it? And they said, well, we can give you a little sip on a sp this little sponge on a stick thing. If you've been in the hospital, you know what the sponge on the stick is. So they give you the sponge on the stick. And I just went, oh, thank you so much. I so appreciate it. And people just would leave my room just weeping. 
They just kept weeping. They t- I had people tell me that there was light, white light radiating off my bed, that when I spoke and I was saying things, that they just had this emotional experience. So all this stuff was going on. And then the surgeon comes in. And the surgeon comes in, and we're still friends to this day. And he was a really young guy for a surgeon. He was, a, he was an expert, uh, what's an orthopedic specialist. He came in, and he shoved the x-ray up in the light box. And, and, you know, he has to deal with all these tragic situations, and it was really taxing on his heart. You know, just his, you know, emotionally, it's very taxing to have to deal with all these sad things. So he comes in, he looks at the x-ray, and he comes over to me. He said, okay, Sandai, he's standing next to me over my bed. And he said, I need you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. And I said, okay. (laughs) And he says, he says, you've broken your back. uh, Your spine, your spinal cord is completely severed. You're never going to walk again, and you're never going to sing again. And I said, that's okay. I'm not worried about that right now. He said, no, Sandai, I need you to listen to what I'm telling you. It's very important. And I said, okay. <laughs> he said it again. And I, said, and I said, well, I'm not worried about that right now. It'll be okay. He was frustrated at this point. So he gets on his knees next to my bed. And he's a very tall guy. He's like six foot five, six foot four, six foot five. He's on his knees next to my bed. And so he was just, um, you know, those beds are kind of high. So he was even with me. So he leaned his arm on my bed and he looked at me right face to face. He said, Sonda. I need you to listen to every word I'm saying. This is very important. I said, okay, I promise I'm listening. And he tells me again the same thing. You've broken your back. You've severed your, completely severed your spinal cord. You're never going to walk again. You're never going to sing again. And I said, I hear you, but I'm not worried about that right now. It's going to be okay. You'll see. And he, take, he didn't remember that he did this. He took his glasses off and he leaned forward on the bed and he started rubbing his forehead with his fingers and he said out loud, See, this is why I don't believe in God, because things like this should not happen to people like you. And I said to him, you'll see, I'm going to be okay. And he looked at me in my eyes again, and it kind of startled him because he could sense something was going on, but he didn't believe in God and he didn't know what to make of it. So it was kind of shaking his paradigm at this point. So I said, what, what's the next thing we need to do? And he said, well, we need to go into surgery. And he's trying to shake this off because it really bothered him. It's like he's trying to shake off what's happening here. Something weird's going on. So he's trying to shake this off and answer my questions. And I said, so what do we need to do? And he said, we need to go to surgery. And I said, well, when do we need to go to surgery? Can we go now? And he said, no, you're too swollen. We've given you something to take down the swelling. We're going to go first thing in the morning. And I said, okay. And so he said, so I'll see you in the morning. And I said, all right, thank you. And he gets up and he walks out very disturbed by the, his encounter with me. So the next morning, he comes to pick me up for, um, for surgery. And they give me the IV and, and I go out. And the next memory that I had was my surgeon standing over me and his hands were on my shoulders and he was shaking my shoulders. And he said, Sonda, Sonda, wake up, Sonda, Sonda, wake up. And as I started to wake up, my eyes kind of flutter open just a little bit, and I could barely speak above a whisper at this point. The whole time, I could not speak above a whisper um, from all the trauma to my body. And so I said, yeah. And he, I realized when I opened my eyes, he had tears running down his face. He said, Sonda, once we got in there, it's okay. You're going to be okay. Your spinal cord wasn't severed. You're going to be okay. And I looked at him, and I said, see, I told you. And I fell right back asleep. So I spent three months, I think it was, you know, it starts to get so many years, you start to, you start to forget a few things. So please forgive me if, if, if it ever comes out that I'm slightly wrong about something. But it was either two and a half months or about three months. I think it was just under three months that I was in the hospital. 
And um, I started walking before I left the hospital and people were just weeping and weeping and weeping. And it was just all these miracles. And so many people were dramatically touched. And while I had barely gotten out of ICU, I was barely able to sit up because Loma Linda University Medical Center was a teaching hospital and a university. They started wheeling me around to all these different classes of doctors, classes of nurses, and classes of physical therapists to speak to them in their, class, in their classes about what happened to me. And one of the most important things that I did with that was they took me to an inpatient rehab facility for people who had been severely abused, and they were inpatient there for a period of time to recover. And um, they asked me to give my testimony. And so I gave my testimony. And at the end of the testimony, I asked if there were any questions. And there were two or three people. And I think there were maybe 50, I think it was about 20 plus or minus that were, that were there. And that doesn't count. There were three or four nurses that were there um, watching everything. And there was a guy in the back at the end who raised his hand for a question. And I said, yes. And he said, I believe you're going to totally walk again. I don't believe you're going to be in that chair. And I said, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your prayers. And um, then we ended. I said, thank you. There were no more questions. I said, thank you very much. And everybody got up and left and went back to their activities. And I looked to my left and the nurses were all huddled together and they were all crying. And I went over to them and I said, is something wrong? Did I do something wrong? Are you upset about something I did? And they said, no. Do you remember that last guy that raised his hand and, and said, I believe you're going to walk again. And I said, yeah. They said, he was severely abused. He's been here for months. He has not spoken a word to anyone since he was abused. So then I started crying. So it was just miracle after miracle. And, um, you know, I want to make sure I don't take up your time. I know we've got a schedule and I know we're getting close. So that was um, the nutshell. In all of your time talking to the surgeon and dealing with these miracles, did God speak to you further? I didn't have any audible voice experiences like I had. I think what happened is, and this could actually be a whole long conversation in itself, looking at it from a human perspective and then looking at it theologically, there are some very interesting things that happen with people who have died and come back. One is they have a tendency to have a lot of supernatural stuff happen around them. There's a tendency to have a lot of spiritual attack. There's just a lot of things that change when someone crosses over and comes back. So that's a very interesting thing, and especially the ministry that God ended up leading me into. So, but it's but it's a it's it's a growth process. I didn't pop out of the womb a super mature believer, and I didn't come back from this out of body experience all of a sudden a super mature believer. Even though I had been a Christian all of my life, there were three times in my life where I totally hit the pause button. And said, okay, God, I need to get these questions answered. I really need to know, is the Bible true or is the Bible not? Is Jesus, Yeshua, really the Messiah or is he not? Is this really real or is just this, you know, some crutch? Because that's what you hear from atheists. You know, oh, religion's just a crutch. So there were three different times in my life I really hit the pause button and went through that with him. And I was answering all these questions. And then if we have time or maybe another time, uh, there was a powerful experience I had with the, I was considering going to seminary. And I started looking at that right before I had my accident. Do we have time for me to quickly tell that? Yeah, of course. Okay. Oh. Then I'll tell it very quickly so we don't run over our time. Right before this accident happened, I was in my home in Sherman Oaks, California. And I lived in a pre-war bungalow. And right next to me in the front bungalow was this woman that I'd, I'd never met before. And she knocked on my door. We just said, said hello to each other. She knocked on my door. I had just finished packing my suitcase to leave the next morning. She knocked on my door. I opened my door 
And she was standing there and she had this very distraught look on her face. And she said, this is for your journey. And she gave me a purple crystal. Turned out that she was into the occult and did psychic readings for people. And she, this is, she said, this is to help you on your spiritual journey. And I said, okay. So she left and I was wondering, what's this about? But the two or three days leading up to this, I was interviewing and going to different seminaries around Southern California, trying to figure out how I could go get a seminary, uh, get a degree in theology. And I kept saying, how can I do a record deal and go to seminary at the same time? I don't think that's going to work out too well. I don't know how I can do both. How's this going to work out? I was trying to figure this out. So one of the places I was thinking about going was Fuller Seminary, but I I called King's College, King's University, which was Jack Hayford's school at Church on the Way, and that's where I went to church at that time. So I go down there, and I can't remember the name of the man who was the president of the seminary at this time. I had this big long legal pad of pages. I started at Genesis one one, and started writing down questions that I had never been able to get an answer to from anybody I'd talked to that was you know a pastor or learned. A learned person. So I called the seminary and I asked for the president's office. I got the president's secretary and the secretary in the conversation, because of the intervention of the Holy Spirit, assumed I was a student. Now, I never, I never lied about it. She just never asked me. She was assuming I was a student. I said, hi, is president so-and-so available? I said, I promise I won't take much time. I just have a question I need to answer. And I've looked at every book and I'm sure he can just tell me what book to do or where I can get this answer. Would he have the time, just even five minutes? She said, well, hold on just a second. She put me on hold. She checked with him and she said, he can give you five minutes. At, and I'm making this time up because I don't remember what time. It was something like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, great, thank you so much. I hung up. I grabbed my stack of books. I grabbed my legal pad with my 500 questions on it. I ran down to the university. I ran to the president's office. And when I went inside, I sat down and I was trying to be really respectful. I didn't want to waste this man's time who had been so generous with me. And I was talking really fast. (laughs) So I said, thank you so much for giving me a few minutes. I don't want to take up your time. I've been going through this and this and this and this. And I've been reading these books and I've looked at this other stuff. And there's these books about Buddha saying that Jesus and Buddha had a conversation. And I'm just, I'm reading all of this stuff. And, you know, they always start out with a cup, like a tiny little rice grains kernel worth of truth. And then 99% the rest of the book is nothing but conjecture. And it's just frustrating me. So where do I answer this from a Christian perspective? And he said, Sonda. And I said, yes, sir. He said, what you're doing right now, I don't want you to ever stop. He said, this is the most important thing you are doing in your life. And he said, you're going to get a lot of flack for it. And most of it's going to come from the Christian community. He said, but don't stop. He said, and he pulled out a brochure or something. He said, take this class, and this is going to answer these questions for you. He said, but what you're doing is the most important thing you'll ever do. Do not stop. So I left that, that meeting. God bless him. Talk about uh, uh, reading you like a book and, and, and speaking a word into your life. Yes. And so this whole accident thing happened within days of that meeting. So... It's only because of retrospect that I can see now, and I, whenever I share my testimony at live events, I gleefully <laughs> tell people, I fully and completely believe, for a lot of reasons we don't have time to get into today, I fully believe that God saved my life by allowing that accident to happen, and for me, to, he totally derailed my record deal. And it's only with retrospect that I can see that, but it's now, many years later, jumping many years ahead, It's been over 20 years since I had that accident, 
And for the first time in my life over the last year and a half, I actually truthfully, God is my witness, I'm not lying. I actually can say I'm really glad that I had my accident because of what God has done in my life. And when I used to hear people say something like that when I was younger, in my teens, in my early 20s, I thought, gosh, these people are just lying. They're just trying to sound like super mega Christians or something. It really, it really annoyed me. But I've really honestly and truthfully, I've reached a place in my walk with him where he is the love of my life. And I understand that and I feel it and I sense that. And he is my bridegroom. I am his bride. And I delight in that relationship in a way that I never thought possible. And I, and I just for anybody out there that thinks that that can't possibly be true, I just want to encourage you, even if it sounds like it can't be true, it really is true. It really is possible. I will be blunt. My mouth has been hanging open for about, oh, most of this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, wow. That Now, I do have to ask you for the sake of the skeptic out there and maybe for the Christian that goes, well, wait a minute, once to die, you know, you only die once and then after that, the judgment or are you even sure you even died? Because, I mean, are you sure it wasn't some figment of imagination, maybe your body was reacting weird or something. I mean, how do you even know that this quote out of body experience was actually you dying and then coming back? There's actually a lot of research that's been done. And if I had known you were going to ask me that question, I would have looked up. There's a Christian scientist that not Christian scientist, the religion, but there is a scientist who is a Christian who actually was interviewed by L.A. Marzulli on one of his watcher series DVDs. I think it was like nine eight or nine. Um, It might've been seven, but he wrote a book on this and he went through all of this data from thousands of patients. And there's a tremendous amount of research on this. So I've researched that myself. After I had this experience, I read a lot of books about it. I can say, yes, I did have an out-of-body experience. It would take way too long to go down that road in this episode, but I can tell you, if you're a skeptic, you're just going to have to take my word for it. I did my homework. I did have an out-of-body experience. I was gone for several minutes because the man who was screaming my name for those several minutes and passed out when I finally came back in my body would be able to tell you that. I was gone. So there's a lot of reasons, and there's physical stuff that happens, not just in the spiritual realm, to a lot of people who have had these experiences, and I did experience a lot of those things as well. So. Um, you're just going to have to take my word for it at this point, but maybe the book will be, <laughs> if when I finish my book, maybe that'll give you some more, <laughs> some more or, of the answer. Or maybe we'll just have to bring you back and examine that a little closer because that's, I can imagine people would, uh, would, 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 would ask that. So I, I, I had to ask that for the sake of the audience. Um, you know, I mean, because a lot of people claim to have quote unquote experiences and, you know, and you can, and you can understand within the church, it's, it, it's kind of a touchy subject. It really is. It is, and there are also some people who come back. There are a few people who come back who say some things that aren't biblical. So this gets into the whole understanding the spirit realm thing, which gets into my ministry because of spiritual warfare. All of these things are totally related. People don't think about it at first, but they are totally related. Um, so it's, it, it all, was, all of this was preparation for a plan that God had. That, and God says, I have a plan for you. It's good. It's not for ill. It's a good plan. And his plan for my life is good. And if you're willing to receive that, if you're willing to say, okay, God, these things have been so painful, 
please turn these into beautiful gems. And I've shared this verse with you in our some conversations offline, off mic. One of my favorite scriptures is in Isaiah, and I think it's Isaiah 53, where he says, I will give you hidden treasures in the dark places, um, hidden treasures in the darkness. And that's what he will do if you are willing to let him do that. But we have to be willing to release the pain. We have to say there's this human tendency where we want to hold on to the pain like it's somehow you can't have my pain. No, because this really hurt. But all it does is further hurt us if we're willing to release it and say, okay, God, I'm willing to let go of this most painful experience in my life. Will you please turn it into a hidden treasure with you? And he will do that if you are willing to let him do that. But you have to be willing. Wow. <laughs> Again, you're, you're opening multiple, multiple conversation starters because I my mind is like, I could think of so many rabbit trails we could even go down. Um, so, wow. Um, I mean, because a lot of people, they sit there and they go, that, that that's great. I'm glad it worked out for you. But God seemed to, um, he, you know, you know, how can he be, you know, such a good God to allow a painful experience? I mean, that's where a lot of people, I think, are stuck, you know. And if you really think about it, a lot of the atheists are angry at him because of the things that have happened to them. Well, that, doesn't that go back to C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain? That book, The Problem of Pain, is an outstanding resource. It's not very long, but it's great for those pondering that question. We do not experience adversity because God doesn't love us. We experience adversity because man opened the door to sin in the garden. We chose to believe a lie and let the serpent whisper in our ear, and we chose to not believe what God said, and that's because God will not violate his promise of free will. So that set off something that Adam and Eve had no idea. They had no idea what they were unleashing on the planet. And that is an incredible, powerful spiritual force that is very dark, and they desire to torment they don't just want to kill you because death is easy. They want you to have torment and suffering as long as possible. So that's where spiritual warfare comes in. And that's why I'm so passionate about it because it's been sanitized from most Christian pulpits. And it is the number one thing that we need, not only to operate and walk as a mature believer and to have the kind of relationship with Yeshua that we can have, but it's even more important because we are entering the last days. I want to kind of delve more into uh, the more theological matters and dealing with spiritual warfare, but we're going to do that in another episode because we're going to make this a two-parter. When you do finally release that book, you're going to have to come back and talk about it. I would love to. My life has been intense, but the overarching topic is God is faithful. He is totally faithful, and I'm delighted that I can share that with people. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you're very welcome. This is why we're doing what we're doing. I'm sharing the stories, and I'm doing my best to come after the questions that everybody deals with. And dealing with major trauma, dealing with pain, no matter how you uh, break it down, everybody's got something. Everybody's got a skeleton, and, and, I, and I honestly and truly believe there are answers. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.